You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome again to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. Today is May 12th, 2021. And we're going to talk about the uh, cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline. But first, I'd like to tell you about the new books in my queue. The audiobooks on my queue have been refreshed this past week. I finished everything that was in my previous queue, decided to go ahead and clear everything out. And I have seven new titles, and I want to tell you what they are, and I want to tell you why they are in my queue on Audible. So in no particular order, from the top of the list with the most recent listen to to the bottom of the list, I've got The Revolt of the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy by Christopher Lash. I think I'm saying that right. It's not a very long book, but it is about the elite, upper crust, highly mobile, global citizens who have decided that in recent decades they love this post-war consensus and they're not so sure they need to think of themselves as Americans. Why not be a citizen of the world? Why not think of yourself as being more cosmopolitan than a narrow view of citizenship and belonging would imply? The post-war consensus, for those unfamiliar, essentially boils down to trying to avoid World War III, trying to embrace a open borders approach to organizing humanity, emphasizing pop culture, emphasizing media that eases tensions, emphasizing the United Nations, emphasizing equity between peoples in third world countries and people in first world nations, developing nations, are just as good, just as smart as white nations, as Joe Biden might say, to paraphrase. But the revolt of the elites and the betrayal of democracy really comes down to what is it that our most wealthy, our most affluent, our most powerful citizens in America actually think of themselves and this country? Do they have any special loyalty to their country of origin? Or do they use their money and power and influence to push for policies which seem foreign, uh, literally and figuratively, to their fellow citizens? Do they push for things like open borders? Do they push for things like bringing in uh, massive amounts of refugees from the Middle East or from Africa, even from countries that don't particularly like us? Uh, do they push against hardline stances with Iran and with China, with North Korea? And do they push for a softer approach that encourages the brotherhood of man? Well, that's the first book in my queue. I'm listening to it now. And it's interesting to think of current events, particularly with our new administration in the White House, with Democrats trying to defund the police, defund 
border patrol, trying to shut down uh, things which enforce immigration, uh, you know, such and such, so on and so forth. The next book in my queue is Personal Memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant by, of all people, Ulysses S. Grant. This is Grant's autobiography that he wrote to try and make some money. And he says that at the outset, he's very candid about it. Uh, I ran out of money. I made some poor choices on who to trust with some business deals. And I was running out of my retirement and my savings. And the idea was put in front of me to write my memoirs. So here we are. I'm writing them. And I'm going to try to include what happened. And I can't include every last detail and do justice to everybody. But I'm going to try and give a faithful, honest account of my own life, my own career, and what I have observed personally. So it's fascinating to me, very well written, very uh, surprisingly subtle at various points. He's got a great sense of humor. He's got a very subtle, dry sense of humor at various points. For instance, he talks about leading up to the war with Mexico before the Civil War, and, he, and actually he gives a lot of credit to the seeds of the American Civil War being planted in the war with Mexico in the way that Texas uh, was handled by the United States government. We invaded Mexico. And as he points out, we could have taken the whole country. We had the whole country in our power, uh, at our mercy. We could have annexed the whole thing. And it's to America's credit that we only kept Texas and we actually even paid Mexico. Uh, we conquered that territory. We annexed that territory, however you want to put it. But we didn't hold all of the territory and absorb the whole country of Mexico into the United States of America. Uh, what's more, we actually paid for it. Now, that's not how most transactions are supposed to go. You don't invade uh, your neighbor, his house, and say, I'm going to take your TV and be glad I didn't take your whole household worth of goods, and here's $500 for your TV. We don't do that. We don't act like that. But it does say something about a sense of honor on the part of our forebears uh, in America that they paid for the country that they annexed from Mexico. But very funny that he talks about <clears throat> uh, American soldiers, and he says that the American army that invaded Mexico was in his estimation, the most professional, the best trained, the best equipped, the best organized army that has ever existed in the history of mankind. Now, that's a little bit hyperbolic and perhaps tainted by some love of country, but he can be forgiven that. Uh, it was highly effective. It accomplished what it set out to do. Uh, he says that some of the soldiers <clears throat> realized right before the campaign that they were sick and that they were not going to be able to serve after all and that this was very convenient for them. Uh, they didn't always get the name of their disease correct, however. And I'm not doing it justice, but the way that he writes it, you understand that he's uh, casting aspersions very subtly on these soldiers who are excusing themselves from fighting by claiming that they're ill, what is really going on is that they are afraid, they're cowards, and so they make up an excuse. 
But lots of really good stuff. Uh, he talks about when he was eight years old, traveling tens and dozens of miles, 70 miles sometimes by himself with goods, uh, returning goods to people who had loaned his family uh, certain things that needed to be returned, uh, making deals, doing some horse trading, uh, literally. He talks about trading for this one horse that looked like it had never been uh, bridled, it had never been saddled, it had never uh, been put to work before. It looked like that before he bought it, traded it uh, when he was a young boy. I think he said he was eight years old, uh, maybe a little bit older than that. But he ended up buying this horse or trading for it, and they proceed to put uh, you know, the, the stuff on it to put it to work, either pulling the wagon or he was going to ride it, one or the other. I don't remember. But then he, he very... Uh, very humorously says that the horse proceeded to uh, confirm that it had never been put to that kind of use by the way that it responded. And so this this funny, uh, you know, uh, turn of phrase he uses gives you the impression that he's really holding back. He's being very restrained in saying that this horse did not take a liking to uh, being put to use. But... Moving on down the queue, I've also got The Civil War as a Theological Crisis by Mark A. Knoll. This one was recommended to me by my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez. Thank you again, J.P., for the recommendation. I'm enjoying it so far. I'm not very far into the book, but so far Knoll is explaining the groundwork for the crisis in theological terms. Interestingly enough, there is a rabbi from New York, I believe it was, who is said to have chimed in on the debate over slavery from a biblical scholarship standpoint. And this rabbi said in no uncertain terms that you can't dismiss slavery as a legitimate institution using the scriptures. Slavery is a legitimate institution. God makes room for it in the Old Testament law. That doesn't necessarily mean that the way that the South was practicing slavery would be affirmed by the text and what restrictions uh, God placed on the institution in the Old Testament. But you can't categorically condemn, roundly condemn slavery as an institution because you're going beyond what God actually said. But there is this back and forth, very interesting back and forth that was happening in churches, uh, from pulpits, in seminaries, et cetera, et cetera, leading up to the Civil War within the church. And Noel says that Americans, both in the North and the South, were profoundly religious, and they saw the Civil War, whichever side of it they were on, as a theological conflict. And modern historians do an injustice to the period and to the subject by skirting that fact by downplaying it, by not emphasizing it. They want to study it from a purely human standpoint. But the problem is where you try to divorce human history from religious conviction, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You gut the conflict of its theological importance and significance, and then you expect people to understand what it was that these people were fighting for on either side. Well, 
at the end of the day, it really does come down to a very great extent uh, to how we interpret the scriptures. What is our eisegetical or exegetical uh, schema? What is our approach to hermeneutics? What is our approach to uh, interpreting the text on its face? What does it say? What does it not say? Do we go beyond what the text says and try to stretch the meaning conveniently to our purposes and our agenda? Do we marginalize certain passages which are clear and pretend that they are muddy because they're inconvenient to our purposes and our ambitions? So all of that and more is in The Civil War as a Theological Crisis by Mark A. Knoll, and I would recommend it thus far. JP recommended it to me. I would recommend it to you as well if you're a fan of history and American history and you want to understand these things better. Next on the list is The Island at the Center of the World by Russell Shorto. Russell Shorto also wrote Descartes' Bones, which I read a number of years ago, probably at this point seven or eight years ago. I found a copy of the audiobook on the shelf at either the Sydney Public Library or the Glendive Public Library in eastern Montana. Picked it up, listened to it, and uh, rather thoroughly enjoyed it as memory serves. But The Island at the Center of the World is all about the island of Manhattan and the history of that place as a Dutch colony. How was it ruled? How was it governed? How was it organized by the Dutch? And how did the early imprint of Dutch philosophy and political uh, philosophy and, and theological uh, you know, persuasion, tradition, how did the initial imprint that the Dutch had on that place influence the city that we now know of as New York City and moreover the whole state of New York and the whole region of New England and the early American colonies which developed into the United States of America. That is the story at the heart of the island at the center of the world by Russell Shorto. Next on the list is Constantine the Emperor by David Potter. And I should note that Constantine the Emperor is a book that I added after listening to The Church History by Eusebius, or a translation and commentary on Eusebius's The Church History. I wanted to learn more about Constantine and understand better what it was that he was after, what it was that he was trying to do. Uh, was it a good thing? It's debatable. There are upsides and downsides to the fact that he legitimated uh, Christianity in the Roman Empire and stopped the persecution. On the net, on the whole, I would say it was a good thing. But I want to understand better him as a person because what he did has a lot to do with who he was. And so if he was a mixed bag, if he was a flawed character, but he did some praiseworthy, laudable things where the Lord used him as an instrument to do things in the protection of Christ's church, uh, it behooves us to understand him better and not just take a convenient approach to interpreting his reign, uh, not just to be flippant about it, but to really dig in and try to understand Constantine in context and to understand the early church before, during, and after Constantine how the people who had seen the persecution prior to Constantine perceived him in light of their historical context, in light of their experience of persecution, uh, brutal persecution, 
to the man, woman, and child who claimed to be or was accused of being a Christian. Also, I'll back up a little bit. The island at the center of the world, I'm reminded a lot of Colin Woodward's uh, American Nations, in which he talks about early imprinting of various cultures on the regions, not so much necessarily the neat and tidy states that make up the United States of America, but what he separates into 11 distinct regions of uh, Canada, the United States of America, and Mexico. I'm reminded of that as I'm listening to The Island at the Center of the World. Personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, I was inspired to add to my queue after reading Ron Chernow's excellent biography, Grant. Uh, The Revolt of the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy, uh, I threw in after reading a number of books here lately on the post-war consensus, the 1950s, uh, how we got into the mess that we are in right now. Return of the Strong Gods by R.R. Reno is uh, another related book, uh, Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham, or Gresham, uh, yeah, J. Gresham Machen? Machen, anyway. Uh, Twilight of the American Enlightenment by George M. Marsden. Uh, but moving on, I've also got The Life of Greece by Will Durant. I'm enjoying this one so far more than I enjoyed Our Oriental Heritage, which is the first volume in The Story of Civilization by Will Durant, philosopher, historian, etc. The Life of Greece is all about, if you can guess it, Greece. So Will Durant goes into the archaeological record and unpacks each and every Uh, subculture within ancient Greece and talks about their worldview. How did they see themselves? How did they see the world? Where did they come from? How did they develop over time? And uh, it's a good story. It's good so far. It's not all new information, but he organizes the information in some uh, helpful ways. So that is that one. And then finally, I've got Whirlwind by James Clavell. This is the sixth and final book in his Asian Saga series. I took a break from it for a while. I've been listening to the Asian Saga for a number of years now. It's quite a long series, but with this one, I will have finished the last, the final one. I can say that I have read the whole series. It's been thoroughly enjoyable, very interesting. It's given me uh, a, a different perspective on East Asia and how European powers, which attempted in the, um, well, I guess you could say, the the last 500 years to trade with and even to colonize East Asia, uh, how they've interacted with the countries, the main principal players, China, Japan, uh, etc. You know, how did they interact with one another, those European powers, the Portuguese, the English, the Dutch, uh, the Americans, and also how did they interact with the Chinese and the Japanese, and how did the Chinese and the Japanese see these European interlopers, and how did they see themselves, and this clash of civilization, East meets West, it makes for a very compelling uh, story, and Clavel does a fantastic job of creating interesting characters to guide you through this historical fiction, and to help you see that conflict, that Uh, clash of civilization 
in a new light. It isn't dry history. It's alive and dynamic and engaging. But that is my cue right now. I was going to run through that a lot quicker than I have, uh, in fact, done. But I really enjoy audiobooks. So what, what can I say? I think that what we're reading has an influence on the way that we see ourselves, the way we see the world. That's what I'm reading. And so if you're reading something else and any of those books sound interesting, I'll be happy to have, uh, I guess, given you a good recommendation. I really appreciate it when people give me a good recommendation. One book I'm planning on throwing into the queue here soon on the recommendation of Lauren's Uncle Gary Duff. Uh, he and Aunt Sherry both came through night before last and stayed with us. We had the pleasure of hosting them uh, on their way through to a conference of their church network here in Colorado. They were on their way through from Omaha, Nebraska. And we were talking about church, and they like to ask really meaningful questions. They've been very instrumental, hugely influential on Lauren's and my uh, family. As we got married and started having children, they came alongside us, opened their home to us. We came out and stayed with them for a couple of weeks, and they were just extraordinarily gracious and welcoming and patient and helpful, uh, to put it uh, briefly. And so them coming through and us getting to reconnect and catch up and talk about how life is going and what's the latest was really good. But in the process, we talked about uh, some painful church experience back in Montana and how our current church situation is going and are we going to a good church and what's it like and what do you guys, you know, what kind of a, a doctrine do you, do you guys, uh, um, you know, subscribe to there, uh, etc. And so in the course of talking about church and dynamics related to church, uh, Gary recommended this book by Paul David Tripp called Lead, 12 Gospel Principles for Leadership in the Church. I've heard this one recommended by Paul Pavlik and Mike Bonnell, pastors at Summit View Community Church. They say that it has been very helpful to them. Gary Duff in Omaha, Nebraska also says that they at their church in Omaha, the leaders of their church have read this and found it very helpful. And so I intend to read it. I'll throw that in the queue once I finish up whichever of the books I finish next. And, uh, and that's that. But before we run out of time, I want to talk about this cyber attack on our pipeline. Glenn Beck at The Blaze says, Cyber attack on U.S. pipeline points to access powers of a digital World War III. The Biden administration is doing the job for our enemies. May 11, 2021, published at theblaze.com. I'll include a link in the description of this podcast episode. I'm going to read a segment of this, and then we'll talk about it briefly. The largest American gas pipeline shut down on Friday due to what experts told the media was the most dramatic cyber attack on U.S. soil to date. Investigators are looking at a group believed to be based in Russia known as Darkside. 
It's time our leaders in the White House take national security seriously because this isn't the first time enemies of the U.S., namely Russia and China, have used the cyber world to attack our nation and weaken our infrastructure, Glenn Beck argued on the radio program. Between Russia, China, and Iran, which President Joe Biden is now trying to make another nuclear deal with, it looks like the Axis powers of a digital World War III are lining up. The journalists seem to care about the price of gasoline for the first time. Is it because they actually care, or is it because they're trying not to focus on the fact that this was an attack most likely from Russia? And it isn't the first cyber attack from Russia of the year. Maybe we should be paying attention to Vladimir Putin, Glenn began. And by the way, the pipeline going down, that's not the only cyber attack happening now, he added later. 30,000 U.S. victims, small businesses, and local governments were hacked by cyber espionage units backed by the Chinese government in January of this year. There is an Axis power. It is Russia and China. And by the way, who is also aligned with Russia and China? Iran. Wow, this is weird, Glenn surmised. But don't worry about that. Just leave your dog tags on another table. Let's not talk about China. Let's not talk about who actually crashed the jugular of our oil pipelines. I don't want war, but I got news for you. This Biden administration is doing the job of our enemies. So that is the latest from Glenn Beck. And I agree with his assessment. This really does come down to Russia and China and Iran, to a lesser extent, North Korea, although I think you can rely on North Korea to come in on the side of any hot conflict on the side of China. China is North Korea's benefactor. North Korea is the mad dog of China. But in the case of hackers... A large, sophisticated group of hackers in Russia or China, they don't act on their own, even if they are an independent group. They are acting at the behest of, with the blessing of, with the protection of Russia and China. A quick test for whether Russia and China are behind this as governmental agencies is if we tell Russia and China that there needs to be accountability for this, that we need to bring the perpetrators to justice, they're not going to assist us in that regard because they're in on it, because they are the ones actually doing this. Whatever front group it is, it is actually Russia and China and Iran. But we have here uh, an act of aggression against the American people within several days of a report dropping that five years ago our intelligence picked up on internal dialogue within communist China, within the government of communist China, pertaining to the engineering of a bioweapon, manipulating something like COVID to make it highly transmissible, to make it far more deadly, so as to win a war with the West. The United States of America is the principal competitor and rival and enemy, more increasingly, of communist China. We are the one to beat for them. They are the one to beat for us. Russia is not nearly so much of a concern as an ascendant China is. And evidence points, strong evidence points, to China having released COVID intentionally in an election year because former President Donald Trump was hammering them in trade negotiations. He was playing hardball. 
they were having to lose face. They didn't like losing face for the whole world to see, for their people to see. It weakened their regime's position at home. And they needed to get that taken care of. They needed to even the playing field. So they released COVID in a lab in Wuhan, China. And it spreads around the city. It spreads around their country a little bit. And they intentionally send people abroad. They send Chinese citizens who are infected with COVID to Europe and to America. And meanwhile, we have the WHO with a head who is beholden to China because of large donations, uh, large bribes, essentially, that China has paid to the country of Ethiopia, where this public health official previously was uh, an official prior to taking headship of the WHO. So you have the WHO doing the bidding of China, providing cover for China at the outset of this pandemic. You have uh, institutions, public health institutions and intelligence agencies in the West giving cover to China so long as China helps them in getting rid of Donald Trump. You have Democrats in America who exploited this COVID pandemic because it was an election year, because they thought they could use it as a stick to whack President Trump with when otherwise he was going to win re-election handily. He had a strong, booming economy. He was getting things accomplished on the world scene and at home. And they couldn't let that keep going. They couldn't let that keep on like it was. And so COVID gets released, and it doesn't matter how dangerous it really is. It doesn't matter how many people actually died. The fact is that the biggest fallout from the release of COVID and from the spread, the intentional spreading of COVID to China's competitors and adversaries abroad was chaos. It wasn't so much that it did so much direct damage, it's that it did so much indirect damage, economic damage. And now you have millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people whose lives economically have been ruined. You want to talk about if you're a Democrat, if you're in the mainstream media, you want to talk about the Capitol riot, so-called, on January 6th, in which president, former president, president at the time, Donald Trump, said we've got to fight like hell if we want to keep our country. And so you have people that look like Trump supporters, at least, infiltrating, breaking into, being let into the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol building. And... The Democrats and the mainstream media call that Pearl Harbor. They liken that to Pearl Harbor, and they want to act like it's the end of the world, and it's the death of democracy, and this is so awful, and look at these Trump supporters, look at these Republicans, they're just evil people, and this is sedition, and this is treason, da-da-da-da-da, they can't find language strong enough to express their anger and their disgust, and they permanently ban President Trump from Twitter and Facebook, etc., They start going after uh, Trump supporters and Republicans who were just even in the tri-state area around D.C. for the protests against election fraud. And all of it pales. All of it 
can't even hold a candle to what communist China did to this country and to the world with its release of COVID as a bioweapon. I'm convinced that it was a bioweapon. If it looks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it waddles like a duck, it's a duck. And the only reason there's a hesitation on the part of the Biden administration to call the release of COVID a bioweapon or an act of war is that they don't want to fight China. And in fact, COVID is still highly useful as a lever and as a stick to whack Republicans with. If China becomes the enemy, well, then all of a sudden that tough line that Trump was holding against the communist Chinese government in trade negotiations, in foreign policy, all of a sudden that looks prescient. That looks like he was doing the right thing and Biden was on the wrong side of history. So we can't do that, but good luck. Good luck making sense without looking like a fool uh, of the cyber attack on a U.S. pipeline days after that report is released to the public. I think that the release of that report concerning COVID originating in a Wuhan uh, bio lab, virology lab, uh, I think the release of that report was a way of trying to test the waters to see what is the public response, what is the appetite for a uh, corrective measure for going after China to hold it accountable. What is the appetite in the American public and in uh, the world? Uh, are we willing to go after China for what it did here? And what do people call this? Well, I, for one, call this an act of war. That's what it was from the get-go. That's what it still is, and it's ongoing. But then comes the counterpunch. If that was a way of testing the waters, I think the cyber attack on a U.S. pipeline is the response. It is the cloak and dagger, spy versus spy, back-channel, asymmetrical warfare uh, response to the truth. The Chinese in their own government, in their own country, punish dissidents. A Epoch Times reporter was just attacked in public with a softball bat. Why? Because they were a reporter for the Epoch Times. Because the Epoch Times is highly critical of the Chinese Communist Party. Because you have to let all of these journalists know you will not report the truth about the Chinese Communist Party and its doings and its agenda. You will not expose these things. If you do, you take your life in your hands. You take your reputation in your hands. We are going to destroy you. We'll do it in front of everybody. We won't even do it quietly and sneakily. We'll do it in front of everybody. And so this guy gets attacked in public with a baseball bat, with a softball bat. What's the difference? So also their treatment of a competing nation. And if they do it with impunity, they do it for all the world to see. We are toast. Nobody will fear us. Nobody will respect us. That's it. That's it. America is finished. If we can't stand up to this, this is a major, major problem. This is an act of war. Now, it could be Iran. The timing is also suspicious with regards to Hamas launching a major assault uh, 
on Israel, seeing that government in Israel as being illegitimate because it's not a Muslim government, because it's Jews, ostensibly, and not Muslims. So Hamas launches this major rocket attack. Israel responds by shooting those rockets out of the sky 90 plus percent of the time. 90 plus percent of the rockets that were fired at Israeli cities were intercepted and neutralized before they could hurt anybody. But then Israel counterattacked and the uh, person in charge of intelligence for Hamas has been taken out. So as IDF, Israeli Defense Force, uh, taunted, it looks like the IDF had better intel than Hamas because they took out their intel officer, their chief intel officer. But you have at the same time, as all this is going on, a dozen Iranian gunboats harassing six American warships in the Strait of Hormuz. Warning shots having to be fired from a 50 caliber machine gun. You have multiple instances of this in recent days and weeks and months. Iran getting increasingly aggressive with our Navy in the region. You have an attack on an American pipeline that delivers, from what I've read, 45% of the gasoline supply for the East Coast. We've got a thousand plus gas stations now which have run out of fuel at which people cannot even go to buy fuel if they want to. That effectively shuts down the East Coast, period. All of your renewable energy push, Joe Biden, Biden administration, Democrats, all of your push for a soft line with Iran, wanting to give them lots of money and facilitate their development of a nuclear program, welcomed them back into the fold, into the nations uh, that are in good standing. All of that proves as dangerous as we were saying it was all these years if Iran, China, Russia are behind this cyber attack on a U.S. pipeline. Now, the Iranians, of course, and those who like to give cover for the Iranians will say that we killed Soleimani. We killed a general of theirs, had an airstrike on him. And so judgment is coming. We're the ones who are the actual aggressor here. But we're the ones that need some payback. And so if they take out our pipeline, well, what's the difference between that and us taking out some of their nuclear reactors or sabotaging their nuclear program? What's the difference between them taking our pipeline down and us assassinating scientists who are working to give them nuclear weapons that they can use against Israel? Well, the difference is that we're right and they're wrong. The difference is that they are an evil regime trying to promote a demonic ideology, and we are a country which is still divided, which still needs to decide whether we want to be on the side of God and the angels or whether we want to embrace death. 
with Biden taking the White House, with Democrats holding slim majorities in the Senate and in the House of Representatives, slimmer and slimmer majority in the House of Representatives, it's teetering on a knife's edge. It really is. It could go either way. A lot of my friends are very pessimistic, I think because it's exhausting to hope and because setbacks serve to make our optimism feel naive and foolish. And if we plan for the worst and refrain from hoping for the best, we won't be disappointed and we'll be pleasantly surprised. I'm still praying and hoping that we don't go the way of the dodo and the way of the dinosaur as a country, as a people. I'm hoping that we don't embrace this culture of death that manifests itself in woke phrases, in anti-racism, in pro-choice narratives, in the LGBTQ movement. I'm hoping that we stop being so godless and we start remembering that we used to be a nation which called for days of fasting and prayer when we faced trials of many kinds. We used to be a nation in which whether we all agreed or saw eye to eye, we ostensibly believed that we were accountable to one God, one creator. Now, going back to the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, I found it funny at one point when he talks about growing up in Ohio and how there were certain cities, towns, villages, counties in Ohio, which were so solidly Democrat and so pro-slavery that all one needed to be a member of those communities was to agree that Jefferson Davis was better than Abraham Lincoln and that slavery was a necessary institution, a good institution. You didn't necessarily have to believe in the Bible. You didn't necessarily have to know what it said, but you sure as heck had to vote Democrat and support the Confederacy. And that was more of a requirement. And some things have not changed one iota. The woke brand of Christianity cares far more about supporting and affirming Democrat agenda items and fitting in with the mainstream media narrative and fitting in with the political ambitions of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, etc., all than with submitting to Jesus as Lord, as Savior, with believing in the promises of God's Word. Some things have not changed, but it is a lie from the pit of hell that we are and always have been and always will be, and increasingly more obviously, a country which is more represented by those people who love death, who love slavery, who love these leftist policies. There's always been that element in this country because anytime you get a group of people together, you're going to have totally depraved people who give free reign to their most evil inclinations. And they believe and they pronounce loudly that all of their most evil inclinations are actually good. And if you oppose them, you're really the evil one. You're the vile, despicable person. O.J. Simpson just made a headline coming out and saying that Republicans are wicked and they believe in lies and they don't believe in truth and justice, most of them, which is rich coming from a guy 
who murdered his wife and another man in cold blood, brutally, and then smirked, who the forebears of modern woke culture celebrated the acquittal of because he was a black man and it's one of yours for one of ours. Police beat up Rodney King and OJ gets to walk free. One of ours for one of yours, as an ESPN writer once so despicably put it. But here we have the Biden administration continuing on in the policies of President Obama, carrying on his legacy. And the consequence is that we're not going to stand up to Russia, China, and Iran. We're going to embolden them. And this is a kind of judgment. The East Coast that voted for Biden, by and large, now can't fuel up their vehicles. Well, maybe try solar. Maybe try wind turbines. Maybe try hydro. No? You're not ready? Yeah, that's what we were trying to tell you. We were trying to tell you this. Are you listening now? This is folly that we warned you, we pleaded with you, and you stuck your fingers in your ears, and you said, no, 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 no. You just care about making money. You're anti-science. You're destroying the planet. How did the groceries get to your grocery store? That wasn't hyperbole. That wasn't exaggeration. Groceries literally do not get to your grocery store. You literally don't get to your grocery store without fossil fuels. And now traffic grinds to a halt. And whatever you have in your gas tank, that's going to have to just get you through the next week or however long it takes for them to get this colonial pipeline back online. And oh, by the way, what was all that business about trying to cancel the Dakota Access Pipeline? What was all that business about trying to stop drilling and campaign against fracking and campaign against new refineries being built? What was all that business? Now now that a major pipeline carrying gasoline to the East Coast has been taken offline indefinitely, now, now you start listening to what we were trying to tell you for the past several years about the necessity of oil and gas infrastructure, about the national security interest, about the economic interest, about the human interest. And we're talking about men, women, and children who can't get to work, who can't get to school, who can't get to the grocery store, who can't get to the doctor's office. We're talking about four months in, five months in to the Joe Biden and Kamala Harris administration rationing of gasoline. Think about that. Life comes at you fast, huh? But that's all I've got. That's all we've got time for. That's enough for this episode. If you've got some additional thoughts on this, additional intel, send it my way. Check out those books. If any of those look interesting and you end up reading them and enjoying them, let me know what you thought of them. Or if you've already read them, I'd love to hear your thoughts on them. But for right now, that's all we got. As always, thank you for listening. And until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.